I started watching the TV show ER before I got cancer. In college at Binghamton University, there was a big group of nursing students who would gather to watch. I joined them. ER was appointment viewing for those nurses and for tens of millions of people from 1994 to 2009. 331 episodes that burrowed deep into the lives of the doctors, nurses, and patients at a Chicago hospital. What's funny is that I kept watching ER even after I was diagnosed with brain cancer in 1996. And in the eighth season, my reality and the show's plot collided. The beloved Dr. Mark Green, played by Anthony Edwards, my hero, my geeky hero from Revenge of the Nerds, is diagnosed with, you guessed it. I have a brain tumor. What? Glioblastoma multiforma. Bummer, huh? Gets better. I found out that it's inoperable. Oh, Mark. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, you're up. What are you going to do? Die, I guess. This all set in motion a series of deliberate choices for how to portray, quote, cancer authenticity, end quote. Mark's character arc leveraged a cancer narrative not just for the sake of cancer, but for a purposeful message and compelling storytelling. Here's Anthony Edwards in his own words. So they had two years to tell the story of someone going through this life transition. So the first year of it was really kind of all the medical part of it, as Dr. Green went through and dealt with the brain tumor, all the cancer, that stuff that way physically. And then the second year, or the last year of the show, was really kind of the emotional journey of someone transitioning. And, and so that ability for the writers to slowly and subtly have that thing uh, of relationship both with the daughter, the wife, all of that, in relationship to medicine and all that, so that by the time we got to that goodbye, it was a goodbye that they'd been setting up for two years. And so I was the beneficiary of that as an actor, and and I think for audiences as well, too. It was really, um, it was hard. Look, Mark Green was destined to die. That's just how it was. After all, that's what every character in TV and film would do when they're diagnosed with cancer. With some exceptions, as we'll learn in this episode, but by and large, cancer is and was a death sentence. Film, TV, cancer, death sentence. Period. End of subject. And it took a long, long time for the portrayal of cancer on the big screen and the small screen to reflect the advancements of cancer in real life. After all, somehow, I'm still here. From Offscript Media, I'm Matthew Zachary, and this is Cancer Rebels, a history of survivorship. In this episode, we're going to go all the way back to the Cro-Magnon days of film, before television, when movies portrayed cancer as a death sentence and patients as pawns. Up until today, when movies and TV shows are telling far different stories that find ways to realistically celebrate cancer survivorship and authenticity. Hi, Mom. Hi, Matt. <laughs> fancy meeting you here. Yes, fancy indeed. My mom, Roz Greenswag, 
is obsessed with film. Is it fair to refer to you as a human Wikipedia of film history? Well, your father used to call me Google before there was Google. Yes. Actually, IMDb kind of replaced a lot of things that I do. It's really the RMDB. Okay. The Ross Movie Database. Okay. Yes. This episode is all about how cancer is portrayed in movies and television. And my mom ticks two boxes here. She has a film studies degree as part of her master's in education, and she lived through my own cancer diagnosis. Who better to talk to? I was diagnosed with brain cancer at the age of 21. And, you know, I may have been a young adult, but the tumor itself was biologically pediatric. In fact, I was born with it. And, of course, to my mother, I was still very much a child, her child. And she was scared, like me. And both of us grasped to make sense of it all. You know, I never asked my mom, with all of her passion for film, if she found any comfort or meaning from the movies when I got sick. She said there was one film that she could not get out of her mind. The only thing that entered in was Dark Victory. Dark Victory, a 1939 weepy, as my mom likes to call it, starred Betty Davis as a young woman diagnosed with a glioma. That's cancer to you and me. The prisoner will rise. The sentence. We've got to operate. Operate. On me. Where? No. Well, after all, the brain's like any other part of the body. Things get out of kilter, have to be adjusted. Oh, no, I won't. Dark Victory was about as far removed from my cancer experience as you could possibly get. I mean, I was certainly no Betty Davis. But for my mom, the brain tumor connection was enough. I kept seeing my father. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor in 1982. And he died day after my birthday in February of 83. It was like eight months altogether. And um, when Matt was complaining about the headaches and all that, I was, my brain was like, God, he's, he's got a brain tumor. My dad, Lou, told my mom that she was being a drama queen. Everything to you was with the movies. This isn't the movies. This is real. And then we found out, guess what? <laughs> it was real. I didn't feel like I was living in a movie. I was living in a reality. Released in 1939, Dark Victory was the first big-time movie about cancer. It had real star power. The main character, Judith, was played by Betty Davis. She had just won the Academy Award for the film Jezebel. There was no bigger female star at the time. My mom says that it would have been easy for the film to just rely on Betty Davis and the sadness of her mysterious disease to propel the film. But Dark Victory didn't do that. It really was unique in that um, the cancer kind of defined her character, Judith's character for the film. It wasn't just a plot device to move something forward. The entire film is really based upon her diagnosis and how it transformed her character from this party girl, love life, rich girl kind of thing. And while actually staying away from the word cancer, the movie broke ground by digging into the science of the disease. This film actually went through a process where you could kind of hear about terms like research for, for a cancer diagnosis. Because at the end, her doctor, wh whom she marries, 
has set up a whole um, office in his Connecticut farmhouse where he's going to do research to look for a serum to cure gliomas, which is what she had. And you really never saw any movie, Hollywood, mainstream or others, that talked about research for cancer, even though the word cancer was not ever really used. But in the same way the movie avoided the word cancer, it also avoided the unpleasantness of the disease, the things that happen to the body, the sickness itself. Betty Davis never physically changes during the film, even as she's dying. Hollywood never had a problem, even in the silent era, of killing people violently, decapitations, blood, shots, knives, nothing. But those were all violent crimes, and it was kind of the American public would accept seeing that. But if they're going to show cancer, they need what they actually called the clean cancers, where mostly it was brain tumors and occasionally like a leukemia or a lymphoma that would just render you pale and tired um, because they're not ugly, you know, like colon or pancreatic or other kinds where the physical damage that it wreaks on a body would not be flattering in a Hollywood film. So they've really never shown, up until very recently, any kind of effects of what it looks like. So the working theory is that it wouldn't have sold well to the public if they didn't keep it really clean. Absolutely. Who would want to go see that? This very notion of clean cancer would continue for years and years in film and television right up to today. You don't see the vomiting, the sores, the colostomy bags, the scars. Audiences want to see beautiful people die of diseases that they can't actually see. But the really shocking thing about early cancer movies to the modern viewer? The patient was kept in the dark about their illness, which was actually a reflection of how patients were treated in real life back then. There's a good chance if you were diagnosed in the 30s, 40s, 50s, even all the way through the early 60s, um, you would have you might not have been told that you had cancer. That is Dr. Dan Shapiro, a dear friend of mine, a mensch and a pediatric cancer survivor. There was a strong paternalism in how physicians approached patients in general. Uh, you might have been told you had stricture or you had a confinement or you had some breathing issues. Um, but there's a good chance they wouldn't have used the word tumor or the word cancer. Dan is many things, but he's also a psychologist who has consulted on the TV shows Grey's Anatomy and Private Practice. A guy named Oaken did a study where he asked physicians if they told patients when they had cancer um, in the early 1960s. And about 85% said they would not tell patients. And, and one of them was quoted as saying, because it's like a basically just torturing them by telling them they're going to die soon. Um, the idea being that patients would live more fully if they didn't know. Going back to Dark Victory for a minute, Judith only finds out that she's dying because she happens to discover her file sitting on the doctor's desk. And she coyly asks the doctor's secretary what something in the file means. Wait, right. Hmm. What does prognosis mean? It means what the future of a case looks like. What does negative mean? That's not so good. It means hopeless. Horrified, Judith runs out of the room. 
And, says Dr. Dan Shapiro, prognosis negative was true for most all cancer patients back then. Honestly, um, we didn't have great treatments or start having real success with um, chemotherapy really until the, you know, the late 60s, early 1970s, where we started our first, the first chemotherapies were invented and radiation started to be used effectively. Then doctors started to feel more confident in telling their patients they had cancer because there was now a treatment that might work. But the doctor-patient relationship was also changing because society was changing. And there was pushback against authority. We, right, we had the demonstrations against the Vietnam War, um, continued changes in our labor history, the strengthening of unions, as well simultaneously as stronger treatments available to oncologists, that this trend towards paternalism shifted and shifted fairly dramatically so that by the 1970s, mid-1970s, the vast majority of physicians were telling patients when they were sick. But not patients in the movies. Jenny is very sick. Define very sick. She's dying. That is the 1970 film Love Story, about the romance between a young woman named Jenny, played by Allie McGraw, and her husband Oliver, played by Ryan O'Neill. That's impossible. She's only 24. What do I do? I mean, what can I do for Jenny? Act as normal as possible. For as long as possible. That's really the best thing. So here's the doctor telling the husband that his wife is going to die. She's not even in the room. And it's made clear that they will keep this from her as long as they're able. She dies at the end from what probably is leukemia. They never really show her dying. She's just pale and in a bed. Once again, my mom, our resident film expert. Most of these deaths are off screen. So, um, and it's how he sees it, how he perceives it. You saw very little of her, you know, for it. But it became a watershed moment because it started a, a bunch of other films coming later with cancer people that had more symptoms. It's true. In the 30 years prior to Love Story, there were only four films made that had a cancer storyline. In the 30 years since Love Story, there have been at least 15. But the patient, the patient often still remained the least informed. In 1973's Bang the Drum Slowly, another leukemia film, Robert De Niro is a doomed baseball player. The people around him are told more about the disease than he is. They even try to think of other things to tell him. Have you thought up anything yet, Doc? I'm thinking. You're a slow thinker. But once De Niro's character does find out and his illness progresses, his fear shows. Probably everybody would be nice to you if they knew you were dying. Everybody knows everybody's dying. That's why people are as good as they are. I'm scared. Hold on to me. So to this point, I've only told you about what's been going on on the big screen. But what was TV doing with cancer from the 50s through the 70s? Eh, 
Not much. There were just two made-for-TV movies with a cancer storyline during that period. But the first one in 1971 was a biggie. Brian's song. Brian Piccolo died of cancer at the age of 26. He left a wife and three daughters. He also left a great many loving friends who miss him and think of him often. But when they think of him, it's not how he died that they remember, but rather how he lived, how he did live. Brian's song is the true story of professional football player Brian Piccolo and his friendship with teammate Gail Sayers. And as the ending of the movie alludes to, the disease he dies from, lymphoma, is barely portrayed. But Brian's song was a critical success and had good ratings. It opened the door, a crack perhaps, for more cancer stories on the small screen. And just two years later, in 1973, the hugely popular sitcom All in the Family had a, quote, cancer moment, end quote, when Edith thought she had breast cancer. Something's wrong. I know you. Why does everybody around here think they know me? Okay. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. I got a lump in my breast. You know, and it's interesting to note that Gene Stapleton, who played Edith, was not really keen on that storyline, you know, which I think is an indication of just how scary cancer still was at that time. I was bothered. I didn't want to. uh, I didn't care to dramatize it uh, and to dwell on it. And uh, I was very concerned about it. And she spoke to Norman Lear, the show's creator. I said, I just don't like doing this whole show. And... uh, And he said, well, it's not about breast cancer. It's about love and how she is providing for the family and and comforting them. And I said, oh, of course. (laughs) And so I was able to do it with uh, pleasure and, uh, you know, uh, ease and peace. So there was one other cancer film in the 1970s that didn't break new ground in the portrayal of cancer, but it did spawn a controversy. The film was called First You Cry, and it starred Mary Tyler Moore as the real-life TV news reporter Betty Rollin and her illness with breast cancer. The controversy came a year later, in 1979, when SNL, Saturday Night Live, parodied the film in a sketch called First He Cries. Mr. and Mrs. Anderson, I'm afraid that the biopsy came out positive. Then uh, you'll have to perform a mastectomy. That's right. You mean cut off her breast? I'm afraid so. Why me? (laughs) God, why me? The following docudrama deals with a sensitive social issue, mastectomy and its psychological effects on the men who must endure the anguish of living with half a woman. So this is a big deal because that was the first time ever that cancer was made fun of on national television. But not the last, I assure you, as we're going to find out later in this episode. 
As you can imagine, NBC was flooded with complaints about the sketch, reportedly receiving hundreds of calls and letters. Remember, no internet back then, folks. And yet Betty Rollin herself wrote a letter defending the sketch. What a way to end the 70s. So enter the 1980s and cancer is still a national boogeyman. But even though treatments are better, all things considered, and people who are diagnosed are surviving more, the depictions of cancer in film and TV are unhelpful. Death is still the norm. But the door starts to crack open just a bit to shine some light, some truth. We start to see the disease, not just the outcome. And it starts in 1983 with the iconic cancer film, Terms of Endearment, about a mother and her daughter sick with lymphoma. It's not so much about her death that makes this movie important um, in terms of cancer movies. You know, um, it's the caregiver, the people around her that made it important. That's our resident film expert and my mom, Roz Greenswag, again. I think it opened the door for a lot of people to see that cancer doesn't only affect the patient, how it affects the caregivers and the loved ones around them during that period of time. And for that, it's much more than just a weepy. You know, one scene that drives the point home is when the mother, played by Shirley MacLaine, seeks pain relief for her daughter, played by Deborah Weir. Well, please, it's, it's after 10. It's after 10. I don't see why she has to have this pain. Ma'am, it's not my patient. It's time for her shot. You understand? Do something. All she has to do is hold on until 10. And it's past 10. She's in pain. My daughter's in pain. Give her the shot. You understand me? You're going to behave. Give my daughter the shot. What's so significant here is that this was the first time that cancer pain management had ever been addressed on film. And then there's this scene where Deborah Winger has a conversation with her doctor about her prognosis, a rare moment where the patient is confronted with reality. The response to the drugs we tried isn't what we hoped. But there are investigatory drugs which we are willing to utilize. However, if you become incapacitated or it becomes unreasonable for you to handle your affairs for a block of time... It might be wise to make some decisions now. Any questions? No. I know what you're saying. I have to figure out what to do with my kids. The raw power of Terms of Endearment was a watershed moment for cancer in film. That same year, Meryl Streep's Silkwood was released... You know, a movie more about corporate treachery than cancer, but the disease was part of the plot. And that's it. There were no more cancer movies in the 1980s. Terms of Endearment opened the door for more powerful cancer stories to be told, but Hollywood didn't take the bait. The 90s, however, saw an explosion of films with medical themes with around 10 dealing specifically with cancer. There's a few reasons for this. Baby boomers were entering middle age in the 1990s, so stories about sick adults resonated, 
and healthcare reform became a big issue as costs skyrocketed in the late 1980s. So suddenly, stories of patients and doctors mattered to people in ways that hadn't before. The first cancer film of this new era of medical movies was 1991's The Doctor. And it was based on a novel written by a cardiac surgeon who was arrogant in a practice, et cetera, et cetera. And he is diagnosed with laryngeal cancer, which they kind of attribute to his heavy smoking, because you see that in the film. And how he becomes a patient and navigates through that experience, not as a doctor. Doctor, you have a growth. What? Tumor, laryngeal. Here on the true vocal cord. I know what laryngeal is. Chest x-rays, blood chemistry, blood count, UA, EKG. I have to check with my secretary, but if it's remotely possible, I'd like to do a biopsy tomorrow. Okay. Based on a true story, William Hurt's character finds himself lost in the role of a patient. This is one of the first times in film where you really get a true picture of what cancer is like for the patient, where you, the viewer, become immersed in their point of view. Being a doctor doesn't do him damn bit of good. He can't advocate for himself because they don't. he's a patient now. And what it's like to navigate chemo, being in a room with 100 other people waiting for their name to be called to go in and do that. And it was really, really remarkable at the time to see that, you know, in a movie, because they really invested the entire film on that. And they showed him not well and being sick and blood and stuff. Not awful, but you saw it. Around the same time on the small screen, a bit of an unsung hero in the portrayal of cancer emerges. It was really ahead of its time, if you think about it, the ABC dramatic series 30-something. 30-something showed the lives of a group of 30-somethings, baby boomers in their 30s, who are now full-blown yuppies, trying to navigate the trials of adulthood. What they did on that show is they gave one of the characters um, ovarian cancer, and they called it ovarian. And Nancy's journey, the character, through ovarian, took us through a season and a half. She ultimately survived, but you saw her in chemo and surgery and bald and throwing up and sick. Shh. Go back to sleep. This really was a watershed moment for television. It was real, it was raw, it hit home. And it served as a guide for TV writers who wanted to understand cancer and what it does to the patients' bodies and their lives. TV does this, has done it, much better than the films, probably because they have a longer period of arc to work with. You know, you can't make a 12-hour movie. And then another long realism drought. Yes, there were more cancer movies in the 1990s. They were overly sentimental, sanitized, you know, beautiful people dying in beautiful scenes. But then comes the 21st century, a new era. Cancer treatments continue to advance. A diagnosis doesn't now necessarily mean a death sentence. And the quality of your life is now relevant to how long you live with and ideally beyond 
the disease. And Hollywood steps up. They start to keep pace with this creative accounting of how, when, where to use the subject of cancer in the artistic treatment of media content. With more people living with the disease, things start to get interesting. Our Cro-Magnon cancer brain starts to evolve. We're almost standing upright. There were definitely some important moments in cancer portrayal in movies before the year 2000. We did see cancer depicted in new ways. We saw pain and suffering that would have been unimaginable on screen in the days of dark victory or love story. But what was always missing, and what this whole episode is really about, were stories of surviving. Sure, some characters in the movies and on TV prior to 2000 did survive cancer, but the portrayal of the illness was soaked in doom and gloom. It wasn't about living with cancer. It was about suffering with cancer and just simply preparing to die. I'm scared. Oh, oh God. I I want... I want... No. I want to hide. I just want... I just want to curl up in a little ball. The main character in Wit, played by Emma Thompson, isn't planning her survival. She's going to die. And we just sit by and play Witness. Now, Wit is a powerful and necessary film, but it just continues. The cancer is a death sentence narrative that we've seen since day one. And now the host of the stupid cancer show, Matthew Zachary. In 2007, I became the host of an online radio program. It was all about young people and cancer. Got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living. Because Not long after the very first show, I heard from a listener who also happened to be a big-time Hollywood writer, and she needed my help. Her name was Margaret Nagel, and she'd just won an Emmy for the HBO movie Warm Springs, about Franklin Delano Roosevelt's battle with polio. Her new project was about cancer, inspired by a friend of hers who had been diagnosed in her 20s. What if I made a show about a group of friends who are at the beginning of their careers, worrying about a lot of the wrong things, making choices because they think they should rather than it's what they organically want to do, and how that would sort of sidetrack or take their life on a different path. And so that was the impetus for the show was actually the death of my friend, but it was the life of my friend. The show was called Side Order of Life, and it debuted on Lifetime in 2007. Margaret was very careful about getting it right. She wanted to make sure that she really portrayed the survivor viewpoint accurately. And part of that approach was to ask me to consult on the series. I even ended up co-writing a scene and playing myself in one of the episodes. Here I am welcoming Vivi, the character in the show who has cancer, to one of my young adult cancer support groups. Thank you for coming out today. It's really great to see some new faces in the crowd. We are here 
because people our age get cancer and no one cares but us. One in 10 cancer survivors is under 40. There are 10 million cancer survivors. So there's 1 million of us and there's no excuse to ever feel alone. Now, my involvement was just a small part of the overall approach Margaret Nagel took to making sure cancer survivorship was properly represented. What is incredibly significant about this show is that Side Order of Life had one of the first online support community boards on the internet where tens of thousands of cancer patients directly got a chance to engage with the writers and the actors, which Margaret says was invaluable. With cancer, it's a, it's a, you have to be really, really careful. And um, because I haven't gone through that. And it's interesting because you discover that every cancer is so different. Every cancer is so different. But she could feel the pressure of the movies and TV shows that had come before her. It was interesting because everything was about losing someone. Side Order of Life was canceled after one season, despite great reviews. But Margaret Nagel feels good about what the show accomplished for cancer survivorship. I do think it opened the door. And then... You know, you could see characters on shows where, yeah, they'd have cancer that season. That season, that character's going to have cancer. And that character's not going to die, and they'll be back the next season, and they won't have cancer. Which was, that was new. So I think people started to wake up to survivorship, because survivorship is huge. The boogeyman that was cancer was becoming more and more destigmatized in American culture. Celebrities were coming out of the cancer closet left and right, and cancer advocate groups were becoming more vocal, like Live Strong, Stand Up to Cancer, and Stupid Cancer. And then we started to see cancer as comedy. Cancer could be funny, or channeling SNL in the 1970s, cancer could be made fun of. And it was the animated TV shows of the late 2000s that really pushed the envelope. Yeah, you can get away with all kinds of stuff when you animate that you cannot do in real time. Again, that's my mom, our resident film and TV expert, Roz Greenswag. She's talking mainly about the raft of Comedy Central shows that became huge around this time, like Family Guy and South Park. Mr. Marsh, you don't qualify for medicinal marijuana. But you said I'm totally healthy. Medicinal marijuana is for people who aren't healthy. AIDS patients, cancer patients, you know, people going through chemo. Well, that sucks. Well, so doctor, how do most people get cancer? Well, there's a lot of ways you can get cancer. Yeah, but what's the quickest way? The what? Well, like, what forms of cancer induce in time for the Ziggy Marley concert next Saturday in Denver? And comedy could be used to illuminate other aspects of cancer, like its financial burden on patients. Carter, you've discovered the holy grail of modern medicine. Why the hell would you keep it buried like this? I'll tell you why. Because there's far more money to be made in treating a disease than in curing it. Why cure someone of cancer in a day if we can treat them for a lifetime and bill them every step along the way? Is it fair to say that the cartoons wouldn't have worked in the 70s and 80s for cancer, but they were the fact that they started to work or just came up in the 2000s was evidence that society and pop culture were gaining some level of tolerance or it was, it was finally culturally okay to make fun of it. But you also had a different generation of animators and writers who grew up in the 70s and 80s, 90s, etc., and had a far different outlook to the way things were 
So I think it's time related. It's generationally related, not just the tolerance for it, because you need the people who are doing it to be a product of their time. So while animated shows were going all in on Comedy Central about once taboo topics, movies were still generally sticking with the tried and true cancer diagnosis, death. And then in 2012, everything changed. What kind of cancer it's, is it? What's the name of the cancer? Some rare what, kind of cancer. What, 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 what's it called? Schwannoma. I knew this. Schwannoma? Schwannoma. It's Schwannoma? What's Schwannoma? That means tumor, basically. 50-50 was the very first movie that managed to bring all the feelings and all the realities of cancer together. It showed a young adult grappling with and ultimately surviving. Wow, living. Who knew? He survived cancer. And he did it with resolve and optimism and anger and especially humor. Do you have a picture of it at least? Can I see it? Why would I have a picture of it? It's common practice in the, to fucking get pictures of shit it now. It doesn't I don't look know. like anything. It's just a lump. That's what it, it doesn't, it's not a picture of anything. Well, you're going to be okay? What are I your think chances? So. What are your odds? I don't know. I mean, I looked it up and it said 50-50, but that's like the internet, so. <laughs> it's not that bad. That's better than I thought. You're gonna be fine, man. You're young. Young people beat cancer all the time. Every celebrity beats cancer. Fucking Lance Armstrong, he keeps getting it. You know, having your best friend be Seth Rogen when you are sick with cancer, that the level of humor that came out of our conversations really was what inspired me to write 50-50. That's Will Reiser. He co-wrote 50-50 with his buddy Seth Rogen, and it's based on his own cancer diagnosis when he was 24 years old. It was almost like people would have an out-of-body experience where they would leave their body, and the only way they knew how to react was to just to sort of coddle me and to say, oh, you poor thing. And that, to me, made, did not make me feel like a person. It made me feel like an object. And Seth and I really wanted to expose how we don't know how to talk about cancer. And I felt like there was this real disconnect and we wanted to expose it and we wanted to do it in a way that was funny, in a way that was, we were not portraying two-dimensional characters who have this heroic battle with cancer, they survive, and that their life is then so much better. We wanted to show what it's like to be a young guy, to feel lost in the throes of the cancer experience, and. Um, we, we just weren't seeing it. We weren't seeing it portrayed. And we certainly weren't seeing young people being diagnosed with cancer in television or film. And Will says he was really trying to get it right. The idea of portraying cancer and someone looks in perfectly healthy for 90 minutes of the movie. And then the final 10 minutes, they suddenly take a downturn and they look like shit. You know, that is unfair to audiences because we're creating a false perception of what cancer looks like. That said, people don't necessarily want to sit and watch someone sick on screen for 90 minutes, which I guess really goes back to why 50-50 has um, been a success, because I think we did do a good job of showing a character who looked like they were dealing with an illness, and yet we also found ways of making it compelling, funny, heartfelt, and people didn't turn away. So I want to get into like how the true to life stuff you didn't intend to be true to life was what made the film so dogmatic. Um, the scene where you got wheeled away, not you, or where you know Adam got wheeled away, mm -hmm. 
uh, from Angelica Houston. And that's that was true to life. Sweet, you're going to be just fine. I'm really sorry, but we need to get Adam to the operating room. Could you just wait a moment, please? So that scene was 100% born out of my experience. That's, that's the scariest moment I've ever lived through in my life. Hearing Will talk about this scene made me wonder what it must have been like for my mom and my dad when I was wheeled through those operating room doors in 1996. And what you didn't know, because they wheeled you away, I mean, we, we walked with you all the way till you were going into that, the suite, you know, and then we kissed and hugged. Once you were beyond the doors and I was on this side, I literally fell down in the hall. So that was very real, very, very real. And that is ultimately what 5050 was for, for cancer survivors. It was very real. There's nothing I'm more proud of than the, what we achieved with 5050. I do think that Hollywood still has some work to do getting it right. I think that there has been a shift since 5050. We are at a place where audiences are smart enough and savvy enough that they want authentic moments. They want the truth. Will Reiser is correct. And the truth is often nuanced and layered and complicated. Some people with cancer die of the disease. Some die quickly. Some linger. Some die of something else. But at the moment of diagnosis, they're all survivors. And this is controversial. But with 50-50 leading the way, movies and TV began to tell stories of survivors that are every bit as dramatic and moving as the stories of those who die from cancer. Enter Chasing Life. Now, I consider Chasing Life from ABC Family to be the most influential TV show to come out of Hollywood that pushed the envelope in advancing the cancer narrative in the mainstream media. The show followed the trials and tribulations of April Carver, played by my friend Italia Ricci, who was diagnosed with cancer in the prime of her life. I guess I'll just need some time to wrap things up, tell the post, and start chemo next week. I need you to start first thing tomorrow. Tomorrow? I can't just drop out of my life that fast. I mean, I mean, give me a couple of days at least. I, I. Last time with George, I didn't even start for a few weeks. This isn't like last time. Since your cancer has returned this aggressively and this quickly, it's much more serious. It's still the same cancer as before. How much more serious can it be? April, I hate to put it in these terms. But without immediate treatment, you only have two to six weeks to live. So when I got the role, I was excited about the job, but like terrified that I wasn't going to know how to do it justice. That's Italia Ricci. My initial instinct was to do all the research I could about all cancers, but specifically acute myeloid leukemia and um try to find out how people cope with it, the different ways people cope with it, how family and, and all these things. And eventually I realized that my character didn't know she had cancer. So she doesn't know all of these things. So I didn't want to go in anticipating the way she was going to feel before she was able to feel it or experience it. 
I learned as April, my character learned and experienced as she was learning what she was experiencing. And it was, I think it helped the performance and the, the story feel more authentic. And take my word for it, folks. As a cancer survivor, I can tell you that Italia's performance was just so authentic. And the story of April Carver itself resonated with thousands of cancer patients and survivors and caregivers all around the world. I think that I portrayed April the way that I I hope that the creators wanted her to be portrayed. And uh, I wanted her to be portrayed also in a way that could be relatable to everyone. I didn't want to be doing anything too specific so that it seemed like I didn't want anybody watching it to be like, am I going through cancer wrong? And though Chasing Life wasn't some blockbuster movie with A-list actors, its commitment to emotional accuracy and authenticity attracted a passionate audience of survivors and caregivers who saw themselves in April Carver. Chasing Life has since become a standard bearer in the depiction of authenticity for cancer survivors. And we've seen this play out on the big screen and the small screen. For example, whether it's cancer-stricken Walter White in Breaking Bad, he definitely had a, eh, his own take on survivorship, shall we say. I've been living with cancer for the better part of a year. Right from the start, it's a death sentence. That's what they keep telling me. Well, guess what? Every life comes with a death sentence. So every few months I come in here for my regular scan, knowing full well that one of these times, hell, maybe even today, I'm going to hear some bad news. But until then, who's in charge? Me. That's how I live my life. And the hits just kept on coming. Red Band Society, My Sister's Keeper, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, The Fault in Our Stars. And then in 2018 came After Everything. Something called Ewing sarcoma. When did you find out? Yesterday. Why am I the first person that you tell this to? Because we're strangers. I mean, just relative to the situation, everybody else would have freaked out. I'm pretty freaked out. Me too, bro. Which accurately portrays one young adult's experience through cancer, emphasizing life and not death. How novel. For me, this film represents the ongoing destigmatization we do over and over again. After everything also touches on one specific aspect of cancer survival often way overlooked, according to our film expert and my mom, Roz Greenswag. None of them dealt with the financial aspects of having cancer and having to pay for it. All these people in all these movies had health care. They had money. They had doctors to go to. In The Doctor, even though he had all this money, you did see how difficult it was to navigate through the testing periods and the chemo periods. So that was important for that. But from a financial sense, real people who get these cancers in real life and their caregivers, they have financial problems too. And I don't think that's really been depicted either on TV or in a movie. Perhaps the idea of not going broke when you get cancer is the next narrative frontier of films about cancer survivorship. 
And it just proves the point that the identity of survivors is about more than just the illness or the cure or the relapse. It is about their everyday struggles to get busy living and live life on their terms. Boy, have we come a long way since Dark Victory. I don't know where it will go. I would hope to see more, you know, continued realistic looks at it. But again, nobody wants to see somebody for 45 minutes vomiting blood in a toilet. Now, who can argue with that? Thanks, Mom. I love you.